Well, good morning. Could you turn with me, please, to the book of Exodus? Uh, The book of Exodus, and we're going to read from the last chapter as I run into Leviticus chapter 1. So we'll read from Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 40 and verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that's on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's son, the priest, shall throw its blood against the side of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that's on the fire on the altar, but the entrails on the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by the wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that's on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Leviticus is a story. Leviticus is a story. And like all good stories, it begins with a crisis, a drama, a problem that needs solving. Uh, The problem uh, is the problem of Exodus 40. If you were here last night, uh, you may remember that uh, we we spoke about the fact that the the tabernacle, this tent, this dwelling place of God where symbolically he lives in the middle of his people in this fiery, cloudy pillar. Uh, This dwelling place of God, this tabernacle, is meant to represent two things. One is the Garden of Eden, we'll return to that later, but the second is Mount Sinai, the meeting place between God and his people. 
Uh, that's where the action is set. So as we begin Leviticus, the people are at Mount, Mount Sinai, but they're going to leave. And when they leave, the, the question is to be asked, how will God go with us? Okay, he's there symbolically on the top of the mountain with the fire and the cloud and the smoke. But when we go, how is God going to come with us? And the tabernacle is the answer to that question. Just like Sinai had three levels, the tabernacle has three rooms. And, and, and the, the tabernacle, this tent, is going to represent the mountain and move with them. But there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between Sinai and the tabernacle. I wonder if you noticed it as we read the end of Exodus 40. It starts by looking very similar. So verse 34, the cloud, this cloud that descends on the top of Mount Sinai, this is the, the cloud of the Lord's presence, covers the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Now when the glory of the Lord came on top of the mountain... Do you remember Moses was able to go up into the, the cloud and meet with God? But look what happens in verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. This is terrible news for the Israelites. God is living with them. The tabernacle is the dwelling place of God with man. But they can't meet with God. Even Moses, the mediator, the chief of his people, even Moses can't get into the tabernacle at the end of Exodus 40. Moses, who could get to the top of the mountain, can't get into the tabernacle. And that's why Leviticus 1, verse 1, is such good news. It begins very literally, and he called Moses and spoke to the people. Even though at the end of the book of Exodus, not a single human being can approach God, God is going to provide a way that they can come back into his presence. They can re-enter this little picture of paradise that is the tabernacle. Leviticus is going to be a book full of grace. And that's why Leviticus is a book full of good news for you and me. We live in an age, I suspect, when most of us, be we Christian or not, think of it as a small thing to enter God's presence. We, we don't understand how weighty, how serious a matter it is to come into the presence of the living God. But our God is a consuming fire. He dwells in unapproachable light. Uh, even the, the angelic beings who are in his presence have to shield their eyes. Think of Isaiah 6. But the, the wings have to cover their faces. They can't gaze upon his glory. It is an enormous thing. Even for a sinless human being, come into his presence. But sinners like you and me and Moses and the Israelites, it should be a terrifying prospect for us. And I suspect because we don't see the, the glory cloud, the fire, the smoke, the cloud, we don't realize what a serious issue it is. But for the Israelites, they would see and tremble. They did, in fact, tremble at Sinai. And so Leviticus is going to be a book of good news. Good news, first of all, that God even wants us back and the Lord called. His word comes and says, yes, I do want you back. And good news that he's going to provide a way. God really wants not just to dwell with us, but to meet with us. Exodus shows how God comes to live with his people. The Viscus teaches us how God meets with his people. 
That's why uh, towards the end of Exodus, you'll see that this tent, this tabernacle, is actually called two different things. Sometimes it's called the tabernacle. It's there in verse 34. And in verse 35, it's called the tent of meeting. The tabernacle is the dwelling place. By the end of Exodus, God is dwelling with his people. But Leviticus is going to teach us how it actually becomes a meeting place for God and his people. And the first way that we learn for, for God's people to approach God is through a series of offerings and sacrifices. There are actually five in the early chapters of the book of Leviticus, five main offerings and sacrifices. Over the next two talks, we're going to look at three of them. We won't quite have time to touch on the last two, perhaps briefly on Sunday morning. But this morning's sacrifice, which I've got an ESV here, and in the ESV it's called the burnt offering. I'm afraid almost every version of the Bible has a different name for it. So you'll have to forgive me for if it's different to the one on your lap. But, but this offering of Leviticus 1, in many ways, is the foundational offering. So what I want to do this morning is, first of all, look at what happens. It's a slightly strange ritual, unfamiliar to us. So we'll walk through what an Israelite had to do if he brought this offering. Uh, then why. And then we'll think about what it says about Christ and what it says to us. So, so very simply first, let's walk through the ritual of this burnt offering. Uh, You might have noticed as as I read the passage that essentially the passage repeats itself three times. The ceremony is the same, whether you bring a a bull, so an offering, verse 3, from the herd, a male from the herd, or whether you bring a sheep or a goat, verse 10 onwards, or whether you bring a bird. It seems that different animals were provided depending on your, your status, essentially. If you were wealthy and could afford a bull, you bring the bull. If you're poor and can only afford a dove, bring a dove or a pigeon. But, but basically, they're the same. So we're going to focus on the bull as the example for us. What do you do? Let's look. What happens? That's our first question. What happens? Well, first of all, you choose a male without blemish, verse 3. God wants a perfect, spotless son of the herd. So you choose your animal... And all these animals, notice, come from what you might call livestock. They come from the family, as it were. You, there are no sacrifices in Leviticus that are badgers or squirrels or, or animals that just kind of live out there in the wild. And the idea is you bring something that costs you, that is close to your life, as it were. So you choose a male without blemish. You bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle. And then you kill it. Not the priest. You kill the animal. Uh, the priest then takes over. Uh, you, sorry, I should, have, I should have pointed out, you first of all lay your hand, verse 4, on the head of the animal. Uh, that is to say that this animal, this bull, is going to represent me. By laying my hand on the head of the animal, it's as if I'm saying, okay, from now on, this bull is my substitute. It's taking over from me. Sometimes people have suggested the idea is that sin is kind of transferred from, from the the human to the animal. That's possible, and in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, there is a ritual that looks a bit like that, but it's slightly different. You have to lay two hands, and anyway, the animal you sacrifice disappears off into the wilderness. It's not one that is killed and burned like this one. So I think the best understanding is this animal stands for me from now onwards. Of course, I'm a sinner, so he stands for me as a sinner. So I lay my hands on it and kill it. The priest then takes over, and collects the blood, verse 5. 
and throws it on the side of the altar. Now this, uh, I'm, I'm not super keen on using pictures very often, but we've got a picture of the tabernacle here, which I put up last night. All this action takes place on what's called the bronze altar. Uh, all the actual killing of animals happens in the courtyard on what's called the bronze altar. So the priest throws the blood on the side of this bronze altar, and then, uh, in verse 6, he cuts the bull up. And the head is burnt on the fire on top of that altar. But before the rest of the sacrifice is burnt, the rest of the bull, in verse 9, that the other bits, so the entrails and the legs, they're washed first. You see there's a basin there? They're cleansed first. And then they too are put on top of the fire and burnt. So the head and the fat, which are basically the best bits, but the fat on the meat is, is, is the good bit. We sort of cut our fat off, don't we, because they're healthy eaters. But the, the fat for the, for the Israelites was the best bit. Think of the expression, the fat of the land. That is burnt up, the head and the fat first, and then the kind of yucky bits, once they're cleansed, follow. And the whole thing is burnt up. We'll see with other sacrifices that that's not the case. But with this one, the whole thing is burnt up, entirely consumed in flames. And there is actually one other stage, which, which isn't there in Leviticus 1, but we're told a little bit later on in the book. The way Leviticus works is that, that the five sacrifices are explained from the, the, the worshipper's point of view first, the offerer, okay, the normal Israelite bringing them. They're explained from that point of view in chapters 1 through 5. And then in chapters 6 and 7... They're explained again, but from the priest's point of view. So in chapter 6 and verse 11, we're told that the priest has to do one more thing. Chapter 6, verse 11, we're told that the priest has to change his outfit, but then he has to take the ashes, the remains of this particular sacrifice, outside of the camp. So outside of the tabernacle, out of the courtyard, outside the camp of Israel, and put them in a clean place. Okay, just store that for now. These ashes have to go to a clean place. So there we go. Animal, a male, a son of the herd, lay your hands on, kill it, blood on the altar, head burned first, then everything else washed and burnt, and ashes to a clean place. That's the ritual. Okay, that's, that's what happens. But why? Why this seemingly strange, really quite precise details of this sacrifice. Two reasons, I think. The first one's there in verse 4. What does this sacrifice do? Well, the sacrifice is going to be accepted for the worshipper to make atonement for him. The first thing this sacrifice does is make atonement. Now, atonement is one of those words that uh, when they translated the Bible into English for the first time, they, they essentially event, invented. Uh, it's literally at one moment in terms of the English word. At one moment. Uh, the idea is that this sacrifice reconciles God and man. This sacrifice deals with the sin of the worshipper the sin of the Israelite who brings it. Uh, somehow, and we don't, don't get the details of how or why, or, but somehow this sacrifice 
pays the price that the worshipper ought to have paid. It covers over, if you like, his sin. And the result is, well, the result is, the result is access to God. The price is paid so that the worshipper has access to God. Now, there are other sacrifices in Leviticus that, that atone for sin, that, that pay the price for sin. But, but in Leviticus 1, this, this burnt offering, as it's called, has a particular emphasis, I think, on access, atonement, paying for sin, so that the worshipper has access into God's presence. As you look carefully at the details, the differences between the different offerings, the thing that, that stands out about this one, as I said earlier, is that the whole thing is burnt up. That's why the ESV calls it, I think, the burnt offering. And, and the word that is used for, for, for burnt up here, the, the burning word, um, has a particular kind of meaning. There are two words in the Old Testament for, for burning, when you burn stuff. Uh, one, one word is used when you just want to destroy something. So you might know sometimes in books like Joshua, whole cities are, are destroyed or, or items are burnt, destroyed. And there's a particular burning word for that. But this word is the word that more has the emphasis of transforming, transforming the, the animal into smoke. And that begins to give us a bit more of a clue as to, the, to what's going on in particular with this atoning sacrifice. This sacrifice is about transforming the worshipper, so that they are fit for the presence of God. The animal that represents you is, is killed, the, the price is paid, the blood is shed, but then is transformed into smoke. And what happens? Well, think about the tabernacle. The, the, the animal is burnt, the bull is burnt on the, on the, the bronze altar in the courtyard. What happens to it? Smoke, it goes upwards, doesn't it? In fact, that is literally the name of this offering. Uh, in the SV, when you read a burnt offering in verse 3, it, the, the word isn't actually burnt offering. Okay? It doesn't talk about burning there. Literally, it is an ascension offering, a going up offering. I think the ESV call it the burnt offering because that's what happens to it. It is burnt up. But very literally, and in some older translations of the Bible, they'll call it this, it is a going up offering, an ascension offering. And that's significant, I think. This animal that is sacrificed and then transformed into smoke goes up. The smoke goes up. Where does it arrive? Well, it goes up into the sky, sure. But think about the tabernacle again. What we spoke about last night, the tabernacle is built as if it is three stories. You can't build a three-story tent, can you? You can't have stairs in a, you know, in a tabernacle. But symbolically, that the way it works, and again, we'll just look at the picture once more, is that, that the most holy place, where that fiery, cloudy pillar dwelt, God's dwelling place, that, if you like, is the top then a step down, you find items of gold in the holy place. That's the next level down, the middle floor, if you like. And then the courtyard is the ground floor. Uh, that means that when you sacrifice something on the altar uh, of ascension offering, as I've called it there, the bronze altar out in the courtyard, and you burn it, and it goes upwards, symbolically, as it were, it arrives at the next level up on the, well, on the gold incense altar. 
pictorially for the Israelites, they are being taught that as the sacrifice is made, it ascends, it's the ascension offering, it goes up, and it arrives before God's presence on that golden altar. And that gold altar was an altar where continually incense was burnt, fragrant smell. Incense was a, 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 in many ways, a kind of perfume, if you like, a sweet aroma that constantly burnt before the presence of the Lord. So the sacrifice was transformed. Starts off as a bloody mess on the altar. It's burned, it ascends. It arrives in the holy place, where symbolically it becomes a fragrant offering before the Lord. And as that incense goes up, as it were, a level, it arrives into God's presence, the most holy place. That's why lots of people have called this the ascension offering. We looked at Leviticus in, in Leeds, a few months ago, uh, and we had a, an, uh, the children are often with us on a Sunday morning, we, we had an ABC for these first three offerings of Leviticus 1, 2, 3. Uh, and, and this first offering of Leviticus 1, we had as the ascension offering, A for ascension. Chapter 2, to let you know where we're going, is a bring a gift offering, and chapter uh, 3 is a come and eat offering. But we'll get there in due time. This offering is all about symbolically, and it's only pictures and shadows at this stage, but symbolically allowing the Israelites back into God's presence. Through the fire and through the sword, the knife, the Israelite ascends, as it were, into the most holy place, comes into God's presence. Uh, Again, last night we... We talked about how the tabernacle, in, in many ways, is a picture of Eden. And Eden, the garden in Eden at least, was guarded by the cherubim with a fiery sword. Remember that in Genesis 3? Man could not get back into God's presence because this, this creature was there with a fiery sword guarding paradise. What happens to the animal that represents the human here in Leviticus 1? It goes through the fiery sword. The, the knife kills it. And then the fire transforms it. And so it ascends back into paradise, symbolically, into God's presence. Why did Jesus die? So you can be forgiven? Yes. But there's more, isn't there? So much more. Atonement has a purpose. And the purpose of atonement, or at least one purpose of the atonement, is ascension. Entrance into God's presence. Christ died to bring you to God. I wonder if at times we're in danger of separating God from the gospel. We think of the gospel simply as a message that deals with my guilt, my sin. It becomes a a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a way of cleansing me so I don't have to go to hell. But the goal is lost. The goal of the gospel is to bring you to God, to bring you into his presence, ultimately. So think of a new bride, uh, the day after her wedding day, who, who meets up with her friends and says, look, look at my ring. Look at my marriage certificate. Look at my beautiful dress. Look at my new signature. I'm now a missus, not just a miss. Look at my status. I'm a married woman. And her friends say to her, well, That's wonderful. That's wonderful, Mary. 
how's your husband? And she says, he? Your husband? You married yesterday? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's great. Yeah, I'm sure he's, he's fine. I, but look at my ring. Did I show you the dress? Did I show you the certificate? Look at my status. We think there's something hugely wrong with that marriage. As Christians, it, we are right to be excited about our status. Our, our sins have been forgiven. We're justified. God looks at us as if we're righteous in his son. We have escaped hell and we're destined for heaven. But are we excited about God? That, that was the point of the rescue. We're not saved simply to avoid one terrible fate and then ignore God for eternity. We're saved to enter into his presence. We don't want to be Christians who, if you like, wave our marriage certificates around. Look, I'm forgiven, I'm cleansed, I'm justified, and I'm not excited about God. So let's think a little bit now about Christ as the fulfillment of this ascension offering. Let's dig a little bit deeper into how this, this offering is fulfilled in the work of Christ. Uh, you all know as well as I do that there are dozens of passages in the New Testament we could look at that speak about Christ as an atonement, as the one who pays the penalty for our sins, whose blood is shed for us. Uh, we could look at Ephesians 5, where Christ is referred to as a fragrant offering. Uh, a pleasing aroma, to use the words of verse 15 of Leviticus, 50, uh, Leviticus 1. Sorry. But, but turn with me for now to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, which in many ways is a, almost a commentary on the book of Leviticus. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. The author of Hebrews, who is the Holy Spirit, a human author, we are not sure, but the author of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 4, says this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Of course, really, ultimately, sacrificing a bull is not going to do anything. It is not the bull who has sinned. The bull cannot stand in our place. What we need as human beings who have sinned against Almighty God, it is for human beings to pay the penalty. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings, there it is, Leviticus 1, and sin offerings, there Leviticus 4, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is Christ speaking, the Son of God speaking. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. They are not going to save eternally your people. Burnt offerings, ascension offerings, whatever you want to call them from Leviticus 1, well, they bring you no pleasure. But I have come. Remember the call of Leviticus 1? If anyone would come, here Christ answers. You've prepared a body for me. 
Christ is literally the perfect human son. The Israelites were to sacrifice a perfect male from the herd or the flock. Here, Christ comes, the perfect human, to give his life. What happens to him? Well, he too goes under the sword. He is executed. He is killed. The knife falls on him. He goes through the fiery judgment on the cross as he suffers God's wrath in our place. He goes through the fire and under the knife for us. He atones for our sin. And what happens to Christ's body after he has made the sacrifice? He's taken to a tomb, isn't he? And really interestingly, in three of the four Gospels, we're given a little detail about the tomb. And I confess that when I, when I read the Gospels, when I read the Gospels, I, I was never too sure why this detail was mentioned. But I think Leviticus 1 helps us understand it. Okay, so in three of the four Gospels, we're told that it's a tomb where no body has ever been laid before. Okay, it's a new tomb, an unused tomb. So what? Is it just saying that there's a nice tomb, it's a good tomb, a fitting tomb for the king? Well, I think there's more. You see, if a tomb is used already, so if you have one of those group family tombs where bodies are lying, then it becomes an unclean place because for the Jews, as Leviticus will make clear, death makes something unclean. If you touch an unbody, it becomes, uh, touch a dead body, you become unclean. Anything that has contact with death becomes unclean. So, so a tomb that hasn't had a body in is a clean place. What happened to the sacrifice in Leviticus 1 after it had been made on the altar? Do you remember? The priest took the sacrifice and put it in a clean place outside the camp. I think it's all just echoes as we read the Gospels to make us think here is the true ascension offering. Here is the true burnt offering. Christ has come and made atonement. Christ, therefore, as the one who is without sin, without blemish, Christ, therefore, is the one who is truly able to enter into God's presence. We can probably ditch the, uh, the picture now. Sorry. Um, but Christ can truly ascend, not just into an earthly tabernacle, but into the, the reality to which the tabernacle pointed. Christ ascends into heaven. He goes up to sit at the right hand of the Father. You might know Psalms, like Psalms 15 and 24, which ask very similar questions. Lord, who may dwell in your tent? Who may ascend your holy hill? Who may abide in your tent? And the answers given are, are he who has clean hearts, clean hands, sorry, or a pure heart, who doesn't cheat his neighbor, who doesn't turn his heart to idols. It describes a perfect man. And you and I read it and think, well, that's not you and that's not me. But it does describe Christ. Christ may ascend your holy hill. Picture of Jerusalem. Ultimately, a picture of heaven. Christ may enter your tent, your tabernacle. Because he is pure inside and out. He is the unblemished bull. Eden, the garden in Eden, was the first holy hill, if you like, the first mountain of the Lord. The Garden of Eden was on a, on a mountain. Think of the streams flowing down out of it. Or the book of Ezekiel that talks about, about Eden being on a mountain. And the first Adam couldn't stand in God's presence. He sinned and was cast out. 
and the fire and the, the sword and the cherubim kept him out. But then the second Adam came along. And this second Adam went through the fire and the sword and did ascend, can stand in God's presence. Christ is eternally and immovably sat in heaven at God's right hand, king of all creation, the one with clean hands and a pure heart. Christ is the true ascension offering. But what has this got to do with you and me? Three things as we draw to a close. First of all, it speaks to us about the gospel. Christ has ascended, so you will too. Do you remember the way that the, the sacrifice in Leviticus 1 worked? The animal was killed. And first of all, the head and the fat, the best bits, the head and the best bits were burnt. They weren't washed or anything. They were just burnt straight away. So the first thing that happened was the head ascended, as it were, up into the smoke and up ultimately into God's presence in the tabernacle. But then the body followed. Stage two, the body followed the head. Well, isn't that what has happened with Christ? Christ is the head of the body, to use New Testament language. And he has gone ahead of us. He has gone into heaven. And if he is in heaven, if the head is in heaven, then the body will follow. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, you know, what, what is the significance of, of Christ's ascension for us? Various answers, but part of the answer is this. We have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take up to himself us, his members. Members there doesn't mean, I think, kind of members like members of a football club or something. Members is like limbs. If the head is there, he will bring the rest of his body. Do you ever fear that you just might not make it? What if God doesn't let me in to heaven? If you've put your trust in Christ, you're already there, spiritually speaking, because you are united to Christ as a head to a body. God can no more buy you from heaven than he can buy Christ if you are in him, because you are one body. We are one body. We are the limbs, and he is the head Christ in heaven is not going to have severed limbs. If you are bound to him, then look at him for your assurance, for your security. You look at your life, your heart, you see your sin, you see the corruption, you see your unbelief, you're weighed down. And you think, really, me? What if I don't last the journey? What if I sin too greatly? But lift your eyes and look at him. And see that in him, you are already there. Christ has ascended, so you and I will do too. The ascension offering gives us great security as we look at our salvation in Christ rather than thinking of salvation as something that rests in me. Secondly, it speaks of our sanctification. Uh, that is our transformation into Christ's image, our, our growth in holiness, our changing into holiness. Do you remember the body parts were washed? The head wasn't. 
but the body parts were. Christ didn't need to be purified from sin. He was the spotless animal. But, but you and I, the body, we need washing, don't we? We need cleansing. Well, that is what has happened to us. We have been crucified with Christ. We've gone under the knife with him. Paul speaks in the New Testament not simply about Christ dying for us as if he died for us over there and we were over here, but, but Paul speaks as if we died with Christ. They're not, it's not two distinct groups that were us and Christ. Christ died and then we kind of believe in him or something. No, we are with Christ, so we died with Christ. We've gone under the knife with him. And therefore, we will be purified. That the Holy Spirit will transform us. I think that's what the the fire represents in Leviticus. Interestingly, in in Leviticus 9, when this whole system kicks into place, when it actually begins, the fire comes from God. It's not that Aaron, the priest, just strikes a match and and rubs some sticks together or magnifying glass and, and, and dry twigs. No, fire comes out from God. This fiery, cloudy presence that represents God begins the fire on that bronze altar. If you like, God is the fire. So so we too, having died with Christ, go through that fire, the Holy Spirit, the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit. Think of Acts 2, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes. The symbolism is fire again, isn't it? Tongues of fire on people's head. We too will be purified so we can ascend into God's presence. One day, you will be made fit for heaven. You're not going to be a sinner for eternity. You'll be a forgiven sinner for eternity. But in heaven, you will be purified. The Holy Spirit, the transforming fire smoke of the ascension offering that makes you fit one day for heaven. Again, good news. Your transformation rests not in your hands, but in God's, God the Holy Spirit, ultimately. And thirdly and finally, this sacrifice, I think, speaks to us of worship. In many ways, it speaks to us of the place of worship. If you're in Hebrews, just just flick a page over to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is is a stunning passage to which we can't do justice now. But Hebrews 12, and let me read verse 18. Remember, Leviticus, the action takes place at the foot of Sinai, the the mountain, the fiery, cloudy, smoky mountain. Verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Yeah, that's Sinai. And I wonder if we stop reading there. We say, well, we've not come to Sinai. Thank, thank goodness, that sounds a bit scary. We've not come to a mountain. We've come to a, a school. or we... But look how it goes on. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's not that they came to a mountain you haven't, it's they came to a a little tiny mountain on earth, Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion. Symbolically, you 
you've come to heaven. You are on a mountain. You are up the mountain. The, the, the author of Hebrews has been making the point all the way through that, that these sacrifice, or Christ, the true sacrifice, Christ, the true priest, does bring you fully into God's presence. Like Moses, you can actually get up the top, as it were. And it is you have come. Christ has already got you there. Spiritually, you're already in heaven. That's why Paul can say that you, you live in the heavenly realms. And that we're seated with Christ on high. It's not just that we will do one day, when our bodies catch up or Christ comes again, but, but that already, spiritually, we're sat in heaven. So where do we worship? The, the, the Israelites came to a tabernacle to worship, a sort of tent picture of a mountain. Where do, where do we worship? So uh, we meet for worship. On a Sunday when we go for worship, we meet in, is it called Falkirk School? Sorry, I'm not too sure. Yeah, we meet in a school hall. Well, that's one answer. But children, if, if someone says to you on, on Monday morning, oh, where do you go to church? You can say heaven. Went to heaven for church. Because Christ has sat us there already. I quite like an illustration from one American theologian who says, that in one sense, we're always in God's presence, in that God is everywhere, that is true. But there's a special sense when we gather together. And he compares it to, to being servants working in the palace. Imagine uh, the queen's butler. Okay, in one sense, any time he's in Buckingham Palace, he's in the queen's presence. But when she comes into the room for a state dinner or something, there is a special sense in which he is sort of almost more, I can't use the language quite, but more in the presence or directly in the presence or, or focused on the queen. Or, well, I think that's what's going on in worship. You are always sat in heaven, safe and secure. But, but there are times when we gather for worship. Remember this Hebrews 12 is all about gathering. There are times when there is a special sense of God being with us. When two or more gathered in my presence, there I will be with them. God is really among us. So, so when you come to worship on a Sunday, don't think of gathering just in a building, but, but think of yourself as, as opening your eyes and realizing we are in heaven. And, and who are we with? Who did you go to church with on Sunday, children? Well, I saw Bob and Frank and Mary and Susan. Okay. But who else was at church? The angel Gabriel was there. Calvin was there. Martin Luther was there. Billy Graham was there. John Wesley was there. George Whitfield was there. J.C. Ryle was there. Murray McShane was there. Thomas Chalmers was there. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And Christ, verse 24. When we meet to worship, Christ is with us as our worship leader. And that's why worship is such a great thing and such a serious thing. See how Hebrews 12 ends? Therefore, have a great time. Enjoy yourselves. It's like a family party. Hebrews 12, how does it end? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We don't worship in exactly the same way as the Israelites. Sacrifices, blood, fire. 
But God is no less holy. It is no less an awesome thing to draw near and worship him Sunday by Sunday than it was for the Israelites to draw near to the tabernacle. I wonder if we think they had the better deal, spectacular, fire, clouds, beautiful tents, and we're... But we have the greater reality. So let's worship with reverence and awe. Would our worship on a Sunday morning embarrass Gabriel, the archangel Michael? Would our attitude as we approach it, be worthy of approaching just the replica, the tabernacle. It is a tremendous thing to draw near to God. And the greatest privilege, it is the gold of the gospel. So come and worship in reverence and awe. Let's pray. Our Father Almighty, we praise you that you have provided Christ at the true offering for our sin, uh, the truly spotless one who can ascend into your presence, the only one who could unlock the gates of heaven, uh, who could ascend uh, and dwell eternally in your presence. And we praise that he did so for his people, a king for his people, a husband for his bride, uh, the head for the body. And so we praise you that all our salvation is in him. And we pray that as we grow into that identity as your spirit sanctifies us and purifies us that we would come and gather and worship you with grateful hearts with reverence and with awe you are our almighty eternal and glorious king and so we praise you now and ask that that cleansing spirit would sanctify us more and more so that we might rejoice with greater and greater zeal, and that we might see with more and more clarity uh, the riches to which you've called us. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.